Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read briefly from the very end of Romans chapter 8, the last ten verses or so, Romans 8, 31 through 39, just under ten verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul here is about to transition into a very difficult theological conversation. Very famous chapters 9, 10, and 11. Investigating predestination and the ordination of God and the plan of salvation. Sometimes we get lost in the weeds when we forget that the context for that conversation is the extraordinary and enduring love of God. Romans chapter 8. Our God is an electing God, but He is also a loving God. His love elects. Romans chapter 8, let's read together verses 31 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with us also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, and who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor anything nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Paul here is waxing eloquent. He is engaging in a rhetorical device. It's called the rhetorical question. He's putting out there question after question. And in the first half of these verses, he is focusing these questions on the detriment that a saint can face from within. Who is it that among us suffers accusations, the fear of our sin, our guilt, our shame that so continually rises within us and seeks to destroy us? And he answers, no, for all your internal struggle, my friends, the love of God is enough. For all those thoughts swirling in your mind, for all of that cauldron of emotion boiling in your heart, the love of Christ is enough. But then secondly, he turns to all the troubles that are around us, outside of us, that fall upon us. And he lists them off. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perils, or he goes on, death, life, angels, powers, principalities, things present, things to come, height, death. Indeed, he sums it up. There is nothing within you, and there is nothing around you that is greater than the love of God. Nothing that can break it. Nothing that can bend it. Nothing that can stretch it. 
Nothing that can possibly distance you one centimeter from the very heart of your loving Father. This truth is born in the heart of the Christian here in Romans 8 and in Psalm 42. Turn back with me to Psalm 42. Even as Romans was given to us to read, so very sweetly, Psalm 42 was given to us to sing. That through song, we might take the truth of the love of God and weave it into our hearts. Psalm 42. This is our psalm of the month, being the first Lord's Day of the month. Let's take a look together at Psalm 42. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Will they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise for the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep and the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down in my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance, and my God. Amen. And amen. Well, I am beginning to feel a bit of my age as I see some of my heroes of the silver screen disappearing. Some of you may have learned this last weekend, as I did, that Christopher Plummer has passed away. He who despised the role of Captain Von Trapp with every fiber of his being has nevertheless lingered long in our memories as that figure. In fact, my Facebook feed this last weekend was filled with him singing Edelweiss. And I was struck again and again how everyone always chose the first scene in which he was sitting on the couch next to his daughter playing the guitar, which is hands down not my preferred scene. 
No, the scene that always gets to me is Christopher Plummer standing alone in the spotlight on the stage, singing Edelweiss until his voice breaks. Overcome with emotion and grief at the loss of his nation, impending flight from all that he knows and loves, he can sing no longer, and he breaks mid-sentence, mid-word, only to find his wife is singing with him. And Psalm 42 stands as a memorial, as a monument for the Christian faith. That we who sing in much sorrow and in much grief, nevertheless find that when our voices crack and break, there is Jesus standing beside us singing all along. It is only when we come to the very depths of our despair that we fully realize the extent to which He has loved us and never left us. Only when we sing in the desperate hours of the night something as tragic and full of lament as Psalm 42 that we begin to realize how much Christ has sung with us and for us. My friends, I urge you this morning to believe to know with certainty, Jesus is always with you. In every sorrow and in every struggle, in every sin, and even in death itself. Your Jesus is always with you. So I beg you to sing yourself into hope. Psalm 42 is given to you as a song to be sung. That you might sing your soul into hope. We see this in the opening line to the chief musician. This song comes to us from the mind, the contemplation of the sons of Korah. But it is not their song alone. It is a song that they have penned for the choir. Hence they give it to the choir master. It is meant for the church to sing it. Notice very sweetly and beautifully they have put the psalm into the first person singular that we might sing it individually of our own soul, of our own struggle. And yet, it is given to the choir that we might sing it together. That we might sing of our own sin and of our own struggle, and yet that we might sing of those individual experiences corporately and share them with one another as we have communion with each other in our communion with Christ. And this man, the sons of Korah hand to us a series of metaphors to stir up the emotions and to capture the imagination so that we might know what we are experiencing and so that we might give song to the depths of our soul. In verse 1, they hand us the first metaphor, the deer that pants for water brooks. Now as a farmer boy, Growing up in fields and forests, this was a metaphor that I never struggled with. I remembered coming upon deer in the woods and seeing them graze at the edge of the field at dusk. And without fail, as I would pause there at the edge of the forest and look out into the field and see the, the deer there in the grass grazing, I would watch them. Beautiful creatures, fast and elegant. And as we would look upon these creatures, at last the wind would change, and they would smell us. They would see us. They would hear us. 
and up would go the ears, and up would go the nose, and up would go the white tail. And gone would be the deer. Without fail, those frightened deer would go one direction, to the river. And any hunter can tell you that if you fire your gun in the woods, and the bullet strikes a deer and it takes off, the first place you look for it is water. For every wounded deer runs to water. For every frightened deer runs to water. And the sons of Korah say to us, My heart is full of longing. Not for water, but for God. The living God. You see, my friends, the wounded of this world should find in their hurt a hope for healing. A longing and a thirsting for God who refreshes and heals. And we who are weak and weary of this road, we should run to the water, that is, to the living God. There is this need in our soul to drink of the fountain of divinity, to drink of the well of eternity. Humans throughout all of history have been looking for the spring of life. There's folly in this. One, they seek it on earth and not in heaven. Two, they seek it to prolong this earthly life rather than to obtain a heavenly life. Yet in God there is a quenchable thirst by which we long for Him and having obtained Him are satisfied. The sons of Korah understand what was put into the words by Augustine. Our hearts are restless until we rest. In him. We will thirst for the things of this world, but none of them will slake our desire. None of them will bring relief. The amazing thing about a pandemic is that it brings forth our idolatry. The amazing things about seasons of intense suffering is they bring forth our idolatry. And so many of us have been tempted throughout this nation to heal our wounded hearts and to seek relief from the incessant pressure and pain by turning on the television, by scrolling through social media. We binge watch as if entertainment brought some healing to our hurting souls. Or perhaps we open the fridge and we fill up our cup, our bowl, our plate. And by stuffing our bodies with food, we think somehow the drug of sugar, the drug of alcohol, the drug to which we've given our addictions will give us relief. And yet none of these things are the answer. No, the soul must learn to thirst for God. And this is the purpose of our suffering. That we would learn in our sorrows and in our weakness to thirst not for these things in this world, but for the things of God. For the living God. For God himself. Now tragically this pandemic has forced me and, and many of us to face that one corner of our lives that we never actually thought would be challenged. You know, throughout 10 years of preaching, 12 years of preaching, I would have easily come to this verse and picked up things like drunkenness and gluttony. And an addiction to entertainment or pornography. But I never would have considered holding up a passion for public worship as something he might take away from you. 
in order to teach you the long for pain. But 2020, he did that, didn't he? 2021, he's still doing that, isn't he? That he has withdrawn from so many of us the public gathering of saints so that we might thirst for him and only him. So that we might long for the means of grace that we have not. Indeed, I find this a striking consideration because it's exactly what's happening in our psalm. The sons of Korah are thirsting for the living God because, according to verse 2 and 3, they haven't got him. They say, when can I come and appear before God? My tears are the only thing I possess. I have not the presence of God, instead I have my grief. It is my food day and night. My enemies continually say, where is your God? He feels cut off from God. He feels separated from God. The sons of Korah say in verse 4, When I remember these things, my soul pours out within me. The Hebrew literally, my soul melts within me. Like an ice cube on the counter, the memory of my past destroys me, saps my strength. Do you know those bouts of sorrow? When one flicker of a happy memory leaves you in uncontrollable weeping. As that unexpected ray of light in the otherwise dark corners of your mind brought to you the taste of a life you've long lost and still long for. In verse 4, the psalmist says, I remember how I used to go with the multitude to worship. I remember how I used to go up to the house of God. I remember the voice of joy as the multitude sang and praised him. I remember the thunder in the auditorium. I remember as they kept the pilgrim feast. I remember when these pews were full. I remember when the fellowship hall was empty. I remember when our houses were empty for one hour on Sunday morning because everyone was here. I remember the festival and the celebration, and that memory melts the soul of the songs, leaving him in a puddle of exhaustion and despair, leaving him in the very pit of depression. Where is your God? Until March of last year, I would have never dreamt I would live in a world or pastor a church that couldn't meet for worship. I was sure it was the last thing I would give up after my own life. So intense is the sorrow and the grief we should feel when the public worship of God is but a memory, is but a long distant thing. So much should be our grief for our brothers and sisters who are this day watching us and not with us. Because, my friends, this is not right, I beg you, never walk into this room and see blue tape and think it's normal. Or to think it's okay. No, my friends, we are a sick society. We are on a And there is a sorrow that should be at work within us 
a misery and a despair that is awoken as we feel the distance from God, the isolation from God. You see, the memory of these things are painful, but they are not wrong. And I urge you, I counsel you, my friends, do not be afraid of happy memories, no matter how much they hurt. Several weeks ago, a pastor friend of mine took interest in my struggles with the closing of the church plant in Enoch. And he challenged me a few weeks ago to write down all the good things God had done in that work and to remember them. He called me up a few weeks later and said, what have you got on your list? And I said, I haven't started yet. He laughed at me and he said, why haven't you started yet? And I said, because I know it's going to hurt. I don't want to do that. And he said, yes, but it's the hurt that will heal you. My friends, happy memories must be revisited. The longing for the public gathering of worship must be revisited. A hunger and thirst for the living God must be stirred up. Do not be afraid to revisit these memories that bring so much hurt. Because they bring us to the end of ourselves. They bring us to the brokenness that we truly are. They bring us to the depth of the depravity we never would have dreamt is within us. And they bring us last in verse 5 to the crowning moment of hope in which the psalmist, having dug in, having drowned himself in the happy memories that hurt so much, he at last cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted? This is a rhetorical question, like in Romans chapter 8. It is the happy memories that have disquieted him. It is the perceived distance from the goodness of God that has disquieted him. His heart has fallen so low because he feels so far from the love of God. And yet he speaks to his heart with courage, with hope, with boldness, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He says, no, I'll come back. I will yet praise him. I will be restored to the public worship of God. To my friends sitting at home, I say to you, sing Psalm 42, verse 5, with extraordinary hope. The blue tape won't last forever. The face mask won't last forever. But this worship service will. Even if death should come to us all this week, all we will do is join the endless, never-ending worship service. My friends, we can sing with extraordinary confidence, hope in God. You'll come back to worship in one way or another, in this life or in the next. Oh, such hope we have in such deep, dark places of despair. We shall yet praise Him. We shall sing His song again. And so the psalmist is transformed by this hope. He goes back now in the second half of the psalm and he revisits the same problem. But where is at first, in verses 1 and following, he began within himself, with his own struggles and his own turmoil. I long for God because I feel separated from God. And I feel separated from God because I am literally cut off. 
from the public worship and from the means of grace. But now he does something different. In verse 6, he says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Notice the contrast with verse 1. My soul pants for God. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. He acknowledges, he owns his depression, his despair. My friends, there's no place in Christianity for pretense. We do not pretend we're okay. We level with God. We tell Him the truth. Father, I'm not okay. My soul is cast down. It is full of darkness. It is full of doubt. But then we have the link to hope. Therefore, I remember. You see the direct object of the verb? I remember you. You see what he remembers in verse 4? I remember the happy days long ago, and they bring me such heartache and grief. But in verse 6, something has changed. He doesn't return to those happy memories, which stir up the fullness of his despair. Rather, he returns to the memory of God himself. I remember you, my God, from the land of Jordan, that is from beyond the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar, that is not from the height of Zion or Jerusalem. Acknowledging himself distanced from God, acknowledging himself cut off from the heavenly worship that is in Jerusalem, owning himself as an alien and a stranger, the psalmist then yet remembers God. And he remembers three things about God. This is the very heart of our psalm. Three things you must remember about God when you are in the depths of despair. First, verse 7. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. My friends, we have a sovereign God. The first thing you must remember about God is that there is no sorrow nor sin that is yours that is outside of His plan. His good purposes. He is a sovereign God, and when the roar of the waterfall is thundering in your ears and you are deafened by all your despair, remember that the deep belongs to Him. When you find that your soul is descending into the crushing depths of hopelessness, remember that this ocean belongs to Him. When you find that his waves and billows are going over your head and crashing you down into despair, remember the tide belongs to him. These are his sorrows. This is his pandemic. He is good and he is wise. He is the one who brings the day and the night. He is the one who brings strength and glory, who brings weakness and fear. I remember my first trip to the ocean with my family on vacation. Farm kids who seldom got away from the farm, we were not going to let a little hurricane off the coast stop us from swimming. And I remember when that wave came rolling in. And it grabbed me. And it lifted me up in the air and I could see the beach down below me and thought, how do I get from point A to point B safely? And the wave came back down and slammed me into the sand and drugged me through the sand into the ocean. And I looked up and thought, how do I get back to the shore? 
And I started swimming with all my might, which wasn't much. And all at once, the ocean was quiet and calm. And I was easily carried back into the, into the surf. I felt a hopelessness, a helplessness that I couldn't possibly put into words. I sat on the sand, shaking physically with terror. The deep calls to deep, and the waves and billows roll over us, and we come to that desperate moment when we realize we are not enough. We haven't the strength, we haven't the wisdom. I remember sitting in a seminary class, and a young seminarian saying to the professor, I've just had a wonderful life, and the professor said, just wait, it gets harder. My friends, if you have not come to the end of yourself yet, wait. He means to break you of your pride. He means to empty you of your strength. Because he is a good and sovereign God who knows how to draw you out of yourself and into his love. For that is the second thing you must remember about him. Not only is he sovereign over the storms, bringing them at just the right time for just the right reason, he is also a God of love. See there in verse 8, the Lord commands his love to be with me by day. He commands his love. It's a beautiful image. For the love of God is not a feeling, but his person. His name is Jesus. The love of God in flesh is Jesus Christ. The Father sees you in your tears. And in your grief and in your pain, alone in your room, as you pour out your soul in prayer, as your soul melts in the face of your despair, and the Heavenly Father turns to His Son and says, Go get it. Go get it. He commands His love to come to us by day. He commands Christ, Go and fetch my little sheep. Go and bear my son to me. Come, carry my daughter to me. His love with joy hastens from his side. Do you remember the father? As the prodigal son comes back on that dusty road. He didn't wait, did he? He ran to the son. And he met him on the road. Such is the love of our father. That he commands his love. Go get my kid. Go wrap him up. Go surround her with love. And let all day long love pulse in their soul. Let love surround them and wash over them. But thirdly, remember, friends, he not only commands love to be with you in day, he commands his song to be with you in night. He commands his song to be in your hearts and in your minds. He says to his song, go. Go and fill that despairing mind. Go and fill that fearful heart. Go, my song. Stir up my saints and grant them peace. There are three ways in which the song that he sends is his song. And I warn you, I'm going to be a shameless RP. And I'm going to slam the Psalter down because on this hill I will die. My friends, it is his song because he wrote it. It is his song because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's only 150 of these in the world, written by God himself, 
Oh, there are glorious other songs. They're so sweet. I love them. And if you don't know any really good hymns, come to me and I'll give you some. They're worth having in your life. But they don't hold a candle to the ones that God wrote. They are His songs. Songs which He Himself brought forth from holy men as His Spirit carried them along. They're His songs that He wrote for us. Secondly, they're His songs because they're all about Him. The blessed man in Psalm 1, that's Jesus. The king who is to be kissed in Psalm 2, that's Jesus. The Lord who is a shelter to you by night and gives you sleep, that's Jesus. Psalm 3. Yes, indeed, he is the content of the song. Our God in heaven says to us in our despair, here's a song I wrote for you. It tells you about Jesus. You know, my love. My love for you, the hurting saint. My love for you, the sinning saint. But thirdly, and most preciously, it's his song because he sings it. It's because he sings it. He says in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says in Psalm 31, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He says in Psalm 118, Open wide the gates for me and I shall enter in. He sings in Psalm 24, Open up the heavens, here comes the King of glory. It's His song. These are the songs that Jesus sings. And so He invites us to sing with Him. It's an extraordinary thing, my friends. He has handed to us a psalm in Psalm 42 that is of His writing. That is concerning his son, in which he himself leads us in singing. The one who sings Psalm 42 in the depths of despair never sings alone. That saint always sings a duet with Christ. Because this memory of who God is, the sovereign, loving, singing God, is so immediate to us, we can then come forth into prayer. You see, the sons of Korah, having by the way of this song of love, stirred up the memory of a sovereign loving God, is brought to their knees. And they say in the end of verse 8, a prayer to God of my life. I will say to God of my rock, here then is that prayer. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I mourn because of the oppression of my enemy. As if with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? My friends, this is an honest prayer. This is an authentic prayer. This is a prayer to the God of our life, the God of our rock, that says, I feel forgotten. I feel full of grief and mourning. I feel the oppression of my enemy. I feel the breaking of my bones. I hear their reproach in my ears. The only thing that is vibrating in my head day after day, where is your God? The inescapable turmoil that swells within us as we see the depth of our sin. The greatness of our need, the height of our despair, as all at once we're awash and we begin to pray. Father, I don't know what to pray for. I remember in seminary, 
finding awful news in my email one morning. And a prayer group came into the computer lab where I had just discovered this awful, heartbreaking news in my email. And they gathered around and they realized something was wrong with me. And my professor came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, You can pray with us if you wish, but I will be praying for you. And my friends, the reality is we have a Jesus who sings for us when we cannot sing. A Jesus who prays for us when we cannot pray. The Jesus who alone was forgotten by God so that we might merely feel forgotten. A Jesus who really knew the oppression of his enemy unto the breaking of his soul, but not his bones. They were kept safe. Indeed, my friends, we have a Jesus who can sympathize with this prayer. A Jesus who is not indifferent or aloof or ignorant. When we cry out, I have no hope. We have a Jesus who can put his arm around us and say, yeah, I remember being there. When we say, I'm completely lost and confused, I don't know what to do. And Jesus puts his arm around us and says, yeah, I remember that. He can sympathize with us as a loving priest. He can pray this prayer. He can guide us in singing this psalm. He sings it more authentically than even we do. For he has experienced the reality of this pain. As we learn to sing with him this psalm, we learn to hope with him. And here the psalm comes to its great climax. Why are you cast down on my soul? Notice the question that his enemies are asking him all day long. Where is your God? They ask it at the end of verse 3. They ask it at the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 10, they ask it all day long. It's the constant question. Where is your God? When a pandemic shuts down public worship, we want to know, where is God? Doesn't he like being worshipped? When all the world is a mess, and all of society is falling apart, we start to wonder, where is God? Doesn't he want us to do well? When we are full of hurt and of grief and of sorrow, we say, where is God? When nothing seems to make sense, do we not say with our enemies, where is God? But when we sing this psalm, we learn from the psalmist, not merely the sons of Lord, but Jesus himself, the chief psalmist. We learn from him to say to ourselves, why are you cast down? Why? Let us investigate that for a moment. Why are you full of despair? And why are you disquieted? Is it because you cannot make it to public worship? Is it because you cannot find peace from that guilt and that shame that has been eating away at you? Is it because you have such enemies who seek to destroy you, who are so cruel and unkind to you? Is it because your relationships are so full of hurt and so full of pain and the very sight of your loved one wounds you? How deep are our sorrows? How great is our sin? Have we not full justification to be disquieted and cast down? And yet Psalm 42 teaches us. To put it one side of the scale, all the sins and all the sorrows of this life. 
than to put on the other side God, than to see the balance shift. Hope now in God. You've been bereft of everything else. You know you can't trust the government. You know you can't trust your friends. You know you can't trust the world. My friends, hope now in God. Having come to the end of every other hope, having reached the very bottom of human existence, having been broken down to the very edge of your identity and lost yourself in the endless sea of grief, come back to the light. Hope now in God. Find Him an anchor within the veil. Find Him a place to stand when all the world trembles, for I shall yet praise Him. Hope now in God, for you shall worship Him. He's worthy of worship, and worship you shall never lose, even to us who have lost it. For He is our help. Notice the final words. He is my God. He is my God. The number one thing we learn when we learn to sing the song with Jesus is that there is no God but Him. And He is our God, who knows us, who loves us, and who will help us with His countenance. It's there at the end of verse 5. The help of His countenance. The help of His countenance comes at the end of verse 6, 11, and verse 5. This refrain, the help of His countenance, what does it mean? It means His face. It means the smile of his face. My strength is found in his smile. My hope is found in his affection. That he looks upon me. That he sees me. And he smiles to me. You may have detected that Psalm 42 is a very precious psalm to me. It is very dear in my life. Because... We buried our dead to it. We sang this psalm over the grave of an infant. And we looked at one another and we said, Where is God? We sang this psalm over the grave of a teenager and we said to each other, Where is God? I sang this psalm over the grave of my church plant and I said, Where is God? And all last March and April, we sat in our houses without public worship. Every morning I would get dressed and I would come down here and I would sit in that empty pew in the back and I would pick up a psalter and I would sing through the order of worship and I would feel the great emptiness of this room and the great wrongness of being in a world without worship. And I would always end by singing Psalm 42. And the sweetest thing is to realize that whether you stand on the edge of a grave or whether you stand on the edge of deep despair and darkness, whether you stand on the edge of hopelessness, you do not stand there alone. The greatest relief and joy those long weeks singing in this room alone was the memory that I was not alone.
For the one who sings Psalm 42 always sings with Christ. For he is the chief musician. For he is the love of God commanded to us. For he is the song of God who has come to us and will never be separated from us. Why are you cast down, dear people? Why are your souls disquieted? They open God. And let us praise him. For he is our help. He is our help. He will smile upon us. My friends, Jesus is always with you. So sing your way to hope. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful song. We give you thanks for the extraordinary depths of despair to which it brings us. That we might be honest with ourselves and admit our great frailty and weakness. That we might bring forth the truth of our sin and the truth of our sorrow. But we give you thanks, O oh God, that it does not leave us there. It carries us into the very heights of heaven. And it sets before us the face of the living God. That by the help of your smile, that is our Jesus. By the strength of your love, that is our Jesus. By the sweet refrain of your song, that is our Jesus. We know we shall endure. Hope shall spring forth again. Praise shall arise. The tape will come down. And all the people of God will assemble once more. O Father, hasten today. Bring relief that we might have once more the full fellowship of the church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might see you face to face. And that we might praise you again without sin, without sorrow, without tear. Indeed, with the fullness of joy we might find our hope fulfilled. Oh God, we pray that this would happen very quickly, and that until it does happen, you would uphold us with a mighty right. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let us give thanks to God for what he has done for us by bringing forth his tithes and offerings. We have done this. We will give thanks together for His goodness. Let's give thanks. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for the snow that is falling. We give you thanks for the beauty of this creation. We give you thanks, our God, for the opportunity to hear your word and to discover hope for even the most desperate of times. We give you thanks that you feed us every day. You clothe us. You give us homes and shelters and families. You, O oh God, abound to us with an abundance of love and grace. And we pray this day that as we give cheerfully to the work of your church and to the needs of others, we might indeed give you great thanks. For, O oh God, you are worthy of praise and thanksgiving. And we do give you thanks this day. We give you thanks in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.